Well, we come to our text from Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 to 35. Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us understanding, we ask, of the things that Jesus said, that we too might be informed and prepared, forewarned to be forearmed and ready watching and waiting for his coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to this next portion of text in Matthew chapter 24, a text in which Jesus is outlining for his disciples who are with him and for us who read his words later of the way in which we should understand and expect his return. You may have noticed that so far in the series about the end of all things that the text has said nothing at all in relation to what most people jump to in any study of end times or eschatology, that is the various views about the millennial kingdom, the 1,000 year reign of Jesus that the book of Revelation speaks of and whether you are a post, a pre an A or a pan-millennialist. And if you've never heard of any of them, don't worry. And if you've never heard of what a pan-millennialist believes, I'll tell you, they believe it will all pan out in the end. And I think that's a good position to have. In In fact, throughout these verses, Jesus has said nothing about such topics, and he doesn't. But he says plenty, in fact more than plenty, about the signs that we should expect that will precede his second coming, indicating to us it will be nothing like his first arrival, which only attracted the attention of some shepherds in Judean fields and some travelling Gentile kings. His second coming is going to be quite the opposite, as we'll see in the text this morning already what we've read What we've established from these verses of Matthew chapter 24 is that the things that Jesus said require careful thought and examination. The disciples started this, of course, by noting the huge stones of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple, and then by asking Jesus two questions in response to his statement that those stones would one day be torn down. And it's very important to note those two questions, what they were, because they help us understand the direction that Jesus took in the conversation. The two questions were these. When will these things happen? 
and what will be the signs of the end of the age? And these two questions are vital because the answers Jesus gives are intertwined in so many ways. Sometimes he's talking about Jerusalem, when those stones will be torn down, which happened in 70 AD. But then at other times he's talking about the signs of the end of the age, the end of the world. So as we come to these verses again this morning, it's important to note that having spoken about the immediate difficulties the disciples would face in the next 40 years' time, in 70 AD when the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem, so now his attention has turned somewhat to the signs that will accompany the end of the age. And on that topic we noted last week, that his coming would be preceded by the rise of false prophets and false messiahs, that they would come and say, I am he. And for those who said that coming of Jesus would be secretive and local and spiritual, Jesus said it's just the opposite. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be unmistakable. And to bring that home, he spoke, as we saw last week, of vultures, circling over roadkill, something that you won't miss. As the vultures circle over the roadkill, so you won't miss the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it's so obvious it can't be missed. But then this next set of verses, as we've read this morning, they're a little bit more difficult and we have to tread carefully as we note these three things about them. First, let's consider the signs that Jesus spoke of that would precede his coming. Verses 29 and 30 are more difficult and have provoked a lot of debate. The difficult words are found in the very first phrase of verse 29. There we read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, etc., Those first words of verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now here's the problem. Uh, Jesus has been talking about the tribulation associated with the fall of Jerusalem 40 years into the future for his hearers and then says in effect, immediately after those days of tribulation, I'm going to come. And that has provoked various responses. The liberals have picked up the passage and say, well, uh, Jesus said that he was coming at the fall of Jerusalem, but he didn't and so he was wrong. Uh, Heretics have picked up the passage and say, uh, Jesus said he was coming soon after the fall of Jerusalem and the tribulation of those days and so he must have, and since nobody saw him come, it was a secret spiritual coming. But didn't Jesus just establish that his coming would be unmistakable? And so it must be that what Jesus is saying here is not that he thought he was coming again in a few years and didn't, but that in consistency with everything he said from verses 4 on, that the tribulation of the fall of Jerusalem is not equivalent to the tribulation of those days. Those days are yet to be. That is, there will be an initial expression of this tribulation in the days of the fall of Jerusalem, but that these will just be a foretaste of the tribulation that will come 
at the end of the age. Look at these words. The understanding of the words those days in verse 29 is so important. It refers to the entire period of time and between the two comings of the Lord, that is, between his first and second coming. Once you understand that, then the word immediately doesn't have any problems, doesn't give any problems. Once you understand what days Jesus is referring to, then immediately is no longer difficult. See, you remember what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus had spoken of, would come immediately and that they would reign with him, judging the nations. They would sit on thrones. Remember James and John, who were jockeying to sit at his right hand, thinking that this is about to happen. They're expecting crowns. And what's Jesus saying here to that expectation? He's saying that in between the whole time of his first and second comings, you're not going to get crowns, disciples. You're going to get persecution. You're going to get suffering for his sake. And Jesus is seeking to change their perspective of what they're about to face, preparing them to be faithful until the very end. Notice again verses 29 and 30, having put aside some of those difficulties, he mentions the signs that will precede his coming and these add more weight to the picture that his coming will be unmistakable. What are the signs? They include the sun not shining. They include the moon not giving light. They include the stars falling from the sky and the powers of heaven shaken. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this quite mind-bending. You can't begin even to imagine what this means for the whole natural world, for the world that we see and know, for the universe that we see and know. These are cataclysmic events that Jesus mentions. These are far worse than anything told to us by current day climate change prophets. That the world will end at the hand of man. Not so. Here is Jesus drawing on language from the Old Testament prophets and the book of Genesis to underline just what's going to take place. Think about that. What were the first of the creations of God that were given rule over other parts of creation? Genesis 1, 16 to 18 tells us the sun and the moon and the stars, the sun to rule the day, the the moon and the stars to rule the night. But when Jesus comes again, the rule of the sun and the moon and the stars are going to be set aside. They're going to be displaced in order to show that all things have been put under his feet. This fact underlines the awesome totality of the power and the sovereignty of his rule. Even those things that we know and see, the sun, moon and stars will be no more. And of course you can't miss this. When the sun is no more, you won't miss that. When stars fall from the sky, you won't miss that. This is not a secret event. This is not a spiritual event. This is a physical event. This is real stuff. This is 
apocalyptic stuff. Not only bringing an end to the world as we know it, but ushering in a great and a terrible moment. One which will divide humanity forever into two groups, two distinct groups. On one side, those who mourn because they have not trusted in him. And on the other side, those who have rejoiced and are rejoicing because they've been waiting patiently. I want you to just get a sense and a feel of the language here, of the gravity of this circumstance that's described and the awesomeness of this terrible day. We're going to explore more of that when we come to chapter 25, when Jesus gives us three parables about this eternal distinction that will be made between the believing and the unbelieving, between the sheep and the goats, between the bridesmaids and the other bridesmaids. These things are incredibly weighty. But see here the comfort that's held out to the people of God. This is not given to us in the context of be afraid, be very afraid. Even in the midst of all that is going to come, God's people can be confident and secure. Why? Because the Lord Jesus will send his angels and they will do what? They will gather up and bring safely home all of God's people, all of his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. One commentator here says, Alexandra McLaren says, the early church thought a great deal more about the coming of Christ than it did of their own death. I wonder if that can be said of us. I wonder if we think more about this than our own death. As we get older and as we begin to think about death in general and confronted with the reality of it, in our own experience of knowing that our body is wasting away, I wonder if it's true of you. Do you think more of the coming of Christ than you do of your own death? Because this coming of Christ is something that God calls us to cultivate in our hearts, that is an affection for, a desire for, a longing for, so that we would be Conversely, less attached to this world and more attached to him who loves us and is coming for us. John says in his letter, the world is passing away along with its desires, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Secondly, 32 and 33, let's consider the illustration uh, Jesus spoke of that would identify his coming. Uh, This illustration he gave to his disciples had a particular purpose in mind with regard to his coming, not so much as the when or the where, but more about the what, what the disciples need to do to be ready for him, the illustrations of a fig tree. Uh, Many of the trees in Palestine are evergreens, So they don't lose their leaves, but the fig tree isn't an evergreen and does lose its leaves. It loses its leaves in winter and, like most deciduous trees, is back in full leaf by summer. 
And Jesus used this illustration of the fig tree to say this, that when all these things which I've been telling you about are about to occur, you'll know that my prophecies are near. That is, the fulfilment of these prophecies are near. He goes on in verse 33 to say that when all those things are seemingly ripe and falling into place, then the time is near. He's right at the door. The background of the illustration is probably found in Isaiah 34, verses 1 to 4, where the Lord promises judgment upon the nation of Edom. The text speaks of the shaking of the fig tree that causes causes its leaves to fall, and it's these leaves of the fig tree that Jesus has in mind. And so what Jesus tells is that just as you can tell us of the nearness of summer through the reappearing leaves of the fig, so you might also know the nearness of his second coming by the fulfilment of all these things. And what does he mean by all these things? He's not particularly thinking about the fall of Jerusalem because that was long, long ago. But the signs we've mentioned, signs in the heavens above us that will affect and shake not just the fig tree but the whole natural order. So these dramatic and cataclysmic events would be an indicator that the time is close. And just as the disciples were to be on alert for what he told them would happen in their lifetime, so he expects us to be on the alert for what he's told us that will happen in our lifetime, if he permits, if that is to be the case. On the one hand, understanding that our experience now involves suffering and trial But on the other hand, that we can look up, know that the time is near. Like the disciples, we don't anticipate triumph in this age, but at the same time we balance that with not losing hope. Confidently expecting his coming, confidently waiting for his coming, for it will be a day of rejoicing, it will be a day of vindication, It will be a day of in-gathering, a day of fellowship, a day of glory. And so he says, even though you're going to go through trials and tribulation, look for the coming of the Son of Man with joyful expectation. Now is the age of warfare with the world, the next stage, and the next age of rest and victory. Balance these two things. Prepared to fight the fight of the faith, but at the same time joyfully looking forward to his glorious coming. And thirdly, from verses 34 to 35, let's consider the certainty Jesus spoke of that would guarantee his coming. Hear him say, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. And here we have to stop and think because there's a certain mystery and a difficulty attached to these words, isn't there? What did he mean by saying this generation will not pass away? Some have suggested that he meant the race of the Jewish people are taking the idea of generation being a race, that they will not pass away until all these things have happened, so God will preserve the Jews until the end. Others have suggested that Jesus was speaking about the type of generation he was speaking to, a sinful, unbelieving generation. It's a tricky one. 
And I propose to you that the generation that Jesus spoke of is a future generation or future at the time when he spoke these words. That is, the people living when the predicted events of the end of all things would happen. The people alive during the time of his return and the subsequent end of all things. It's to them, it's to that generation that Jesus says that all these things will happen so quickly that it will be all over before the next generation beyond them are born. That generation won't pass away. So we can learn, therefore, that what Jesus means here is that these events of the end times will not only have a short duration, but those who are alive at the time who see them will only have a short time before the end comes. When the end comes, it's going to come quickly. But I think even more importantly than that, once we've hopefully cleared that apart to the side, there's a fundamental truth that we all have to grasp and never let go of here. It's the guarantee that he gives. The guarantee of his coming is found in this, that he said he would and his words would never, ever pass away. It's a certainty. And though we who live in this world and see around us the signs of moral decay and the signs of apostasy and the suffering of believers and see these things dragging on as if there's no end in sight, we must not ever forget that he promised to come. And just as he foretold the fall of Jerusalem to the generation who heard him and was proved to be true, so he has also spoken of his return at the end of the age, given giving the same guarantee of his word. He says he will come. He will come. And of course the question we'd all like answered is, yeah, but when? When, Lord? When will be the time of your coming? Well, I'll happily tell you. If you look down to verse 36, which we come to next week, he answers that question with a reference to a day and an hour that no one knows. We'll speak about that next week. But for now, just notice the wisdom in his words. Had he said, on such and such a day, at such and such a time, where would have been the need for his disciples to be ready? Where would be the need for sinners to repent and believe the gospel? For if the day of his return was known, then surely last-minute repentance from all quarters would be standard. But since the day and the hour is unknown, then all must be ready and all must be banking on his guarantee that though heaven and earth pass away, his words would never. Ready, waiting, and as we'll see in the next chapter, rewarded by being vigilant. So that's where we're at. I think you get the picture. There's more to come, but I think the picture is hopefully becoming a little bit clear. It can be a bit messy thinking about things in relation to the end.
But what we do know is that there are all kinds of uncertainties about this world now. Guess what? Those uncertainties are not going to go away. They're going to persist into the future. But we take this from the text. The world will not disappear or dissolve without God's express permission. And the only uncertainties are when and not if he will come. And we hear this in the scriptures, Hebrews 9:27. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the only way to escape from the bubble of uncertainty to the assurance of certainty is this. It's to take him at his word. It's to not just believe in him, it's to believe him. Here are words he gives us to believe and take to heart. Hold to him. Cling to him. For his words are trustworthy and true And he has told us these things beforehand that we might not be unprepared. Only he can save us and only he will. And that he will do forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to thank you for your word and think about these things that the Lord Jesus said long ago, As we look at this world and we know what it is to see sun, moon and stars and by that we often think the world will just go on and on. These things will never be shaken. But today we discover that there is a power greater than the sun, moon and stars. There is one for whom the sun, moon and stars exist and that one is coming And we would want to be found on his team, not opposing him, not among the mourners who weep and wail and gnash their teeth at the sight of him, but among those who lift up their heads and rejoice, knowing what he has done for us and knowing the fulfilment of what he's promised has come. And again, Lord, we don't know when this is to be. But we can only pray that you would help us all to be ready. Ready and watching. Ready and trusting. Ready and believing. Keep us, Lord, in the knowledge of the circle of your will and your love that we might never stray And help us to look for him who is coming again in power and glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.